Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And we just sang about this. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need let's pray together lord we are a people in need of your help we want to receive your mercy we want to find your grace to help us in our times of need and we come to you lord today and we pray that through this passage and the passages to come in Hebrews that, Lord, our lives with you would be deepened by the invitation from you and the access won by you to come boldly, confidently to that throne of grace. So, Lord, we ask that you would meet us here this morning in your word. Help us, Lord, to understand and receive by faith and apply Lord, what you are saying to us. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. I'd like to begin this teaching by reading to you a cluster of one-line prayers from Israel's prayer book, the book of Psalms, regarding help. And I just want you to listen to all the different ways that they spoke of their need for the help of God. Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. And from His temple, He heard my voice, and my cry to Him reached His ears. Psalm 30, verse 2. O Lord, my God, I cried to You for help, and You have healed me. Psalm 38, verse 22. Make haste to help me, O Lord, of my salvation. Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 60, verse 11, O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. Psalm 70, verse 1, make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Psalm 79, verse 9, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of Your name. Psalm 109, verse 26. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to Your steadfast love. Psalm 118, verse 13. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Psalm 119, verse 147. I will rise before dawn 
and cry for help, I hope, in your words. In Psalm 121, verse 1 and 2, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. These are just a few of the verses in Psalms or a few of the prayers in Israel's songbook dealing with the need for the people of God to receive God's help, God's strength, God's salvation. And just so that you have this clear in your mind, I just selected a few of the verses that talk about the help of God all throughout the Psalms. I mean, we could just be here for the next 45 minutes reading these different Psalms if I selected every single one, because on and on and on again, the people of Israel, as they prayed to God, asked God for help. And as I scan that in the book of Psalms, there are a couple of conclusions that I think we could come to. Conclusion number one is this, you need help. I need help. We are a people who are in need of God's help. And conclusion number two would be attached to that first conclusion, and it would be simply this. God welcomes, invites, wants to create a culture amongst His people where there is an understanding that they need His help. In other words, God wants to help His people. God desires to sustain His people. God wants an increasing dependence to blossom and flourish and grow within the hearts of his followers. God is not bothered by our need for help. God is not put off by our need for help, nor does God say, you should grow out of your need for help in me. No, in fact, God sees as he looks into our lives that he has called us and asked us to do some fairly difficult things for him in his kingdom and for his glory. And so not only do we need help for the basic human things of life, but we also desperately need His help if we are going to be fruitful on this planet and bring Him honor and glory. And so He wants us to come to Him so that we might receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Now you may have noticed that I'm slowing down in our study of the book of Hebrews right now. Up to this point, we've been covering half a chapter or a full chapter uh, in the book. And there are times throughout this book where it is good to slow down, where it is good to pause. And I'm tempted to pause right here and slow down on these three verses because they are some of the most magnificent verses, not only in the book of Hebrews, but in all of God's Word. So there's part of this as I just come to Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16, where I want to slow down just because these verses are awesome. But the book of Hebrews would give us permission to slow down right here for a specific reason. Over the next few weeks and even months, we are going to be looking at a larger section of the book of Hebrews where the author is now getting to his main point about Jesus being better than Moses, the prophets, the Levitical system, and the law, and the high priestly system in that he is going to describe for us in the next few chapters how incredible Jesus is as our great high priest. And in looking at these three verses, we are basically looking at an introduction to the next major section of the book of Hebrews about Jesus as our great high priest. So it's a good place for us to pause and slow down and consider this ministry of Jesus. 
and how he wants to be the one to bring help and aid into our life. All right, so here's how we're going to do this today from these three verses. We're going to ask two questions. Can you guys handle two questions? We're going to ask two questions. I don't know why I'm holding up two hands. That's four questions. Two <laughs> questions. It might feel like four questions by the time we're d- done today, but, but we're going to ask two questions. Question number one is this. Who is Jesus? From this passage, from this text, who is Jesus? What do we learn about Jesus? Why is it beautiful? Why is he said to be great in this passage? So who is Jesus? And then the second question relates to the answer to that first question. The second question would be, and how should I respond to who he is? What should be my pattern of life, my pattern of living in response to who I learn him to be in this passage? All right, so let's look at the first question. Who is Jesus? Would you look with your eyes to verse 14? It just starts out by saying, since then we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. We're going to learn here that Jesus, who is Jesus? Well, he is our great high priest. Now, I realize that we are living in California in 2019 right now. And we are very far removed from what the original readers would have felt when they read, Jesus is my great high priest. In fact, for many people here today, you read great high priest and you have maybe an image in your mind, an image of what a priest is that is actually disconnected entirely from the Old Testament Levitical priesthood that the original readers would have been thinking about. So we need to think for a moment, if you just bear with me, about what the original readers would have thought when they read that Jesus was their great high priest. Because they came from a system of worship that had not only a priesthood with hundreds of different men that were operating and offering sacrifices to the Lord in either a tabernacle or eventually a permanent temple in Jerusalem before God, they not only had a priesthood, but that priesthood was overseen by one person called the high priest in Israel. And that high priest was supposed to be a bit of a mediator between the nation and God. He was supposed to pray to God on behalf of the nation. He was supposed to intercede for the nation to God. He was supposed to ask God for mercy, for forgiveness, for grace, for the people of Israel, for the nation. And not only that, but he was supposed to encourage and exhort And in a sense, keep accountable the people of Israel to make sure that they were still worshiping God through the sacrificial system that God had given to them for that era. But the high priest had one major, major duty that the author of the Hebrews is thinking about and that was so important and that the people who read this originally would have been thinking of. And it was his role on, a, on one specific day an Israel's worship calendar. Every year, the people of Israel had this one day that they called the Day of Atonement, that God called the Day of Atonement. And this was the day where they would sense that they had by faith been forgiven nationally as a people, as a congregation, that they had been forgiven of their sin. And the way this day began was fascinating. First of all, 
the high priest had special garments that he would wear for that particular day. He would put on these garments, and then he would go out and he would select two goats for the nation of Israel. These goats would then be set aside. It was a big religious ceremony, the selection of these two goats. There was an inspection and all of that to make sure that they were clean, that there was no spot, no blemish on them. So, so he would select these two goats. Then he would go back and he would select a bull, not for the nation, but for himself. He would take that bull and in those garments, he would slay the bull and he would offer the bull as a sacrifice for not the sin of the nation, but for his own sin. You see, the high priest went to God knowing that he was trying to intercede for a sinful people, but that he himself was also a sinner in need of grace. And so he would offer that sacrifice, that bull before God. Then, after offering that sacrifice on the altar outside of the temple, he would then go and cast lots to differentiate the two goats that he had previously selected for the people of Israel. One goat would be sacrificed and the other would be held on to, preserved for a later moment on that day of atonement. Then, next, the high priest would go to the altar where he had just offered that bull offering for his own sin and he would take coals from that outside altar and bring them into the temple or the tabernacle. And he would take those coals and put them on a second altar inside of the tabernacle or temple called the altar of incense. It was a small little altar meant to represent the prayers of the nation. And he would put the coals on that altar and put incense upon those coals so that the incense would begin to burn and waft back even further into the temple in a room called the Holy of Holies. Then the priest would go back out and get some blood from that bull offering. Take the blood in, not just into the tabernacle, but into the Holy of Holies where he would sprinkle the blood upon that room and upon the Ark of the Covenant that was inside of that room. After successfully completing a sacrifice for his own sin, he would then come out of the tabernacle or out of the temple and he would take the one goat that had been chosen through the casting of lots, and he would offer it as a sin sacrifice for the people. His own sin taken care of, he would now offer a sacrifice for the people of God. Then, after offering that sacrifice, he would take the blood from that sacrifice, that goat, and go into the Holy of Holies before God. And he would sprinkle the blood before the Lord. And ask God in that private moment that he would forgive them and cleanse them of all of their sin. But then he would come out. He was not finished at that point because he would take the second goat that was still alive, the living goat, and he would place his hands upon it. And he would pray a prayer for the nation asking that all of their sins would be placed into the body of this animal then he would give this animal to a servant who would take it into the wilderness and let it roam free. It would be considered the scapegoat for the people of Israel. Then he would go back in, take off his priestly garments, cleanse himself ceremonially, put on his normal garments, and go and offer 
a burnt offering, not a sin offering, but a burnt offering for himself and for the people. It was a way to say we can now have friendship and communion with God because we are clean. We couldn't do this before. We couldn't just flippantly come in here and pray to God before because we had sin that was upon us. But now, because our sin has been covered by faith, by the blood, we are able to have communion and fellowship with Him. When all of that was completed, They would take the remnant from the offerings, the animals that had been offered, take them outside of the camp through the hands of one of the servants, burn them up so that there was no remnant left. That servant would then take off his clothes and wash them, cleanse his own body ceremonially, and then come back in. And with that, they were forgiven and the day of atonement had been completed. It was only then at that moment that God would say, Leviticus 16, verse 32, you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Now, let me just ask you right here. Aren't you glad that that's not what church is consisting of today? Aren't you glad that we live on the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ? But you see, when these original readers thought about what the high priest would do, And when they thought about God and His holiness, His transcendence, when they thought about Him, they would have agreed with what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 when he said, God dwells in unapproachable light. You see, they had a view of God that they could not just flippantly come into His presence, but that He was so holy, so majestic, and that they were scarred, ruined, shamed, burdened kept out by their own sin and that their sin needed to be dealt with now what we learn here is that jesus is our great high priest he is the one who has sacrificed himself not a bull and not a goat so that we might come in he is the one who did not need a sacrifice for himself because he was sinless in the first place And He has made a way for us to now come and approach the living God. So who is Jesus? Jesus is our great high priest. He's living and sitting right now at the right hand of God, God, living to make intercession for us. Now, think about this ministry of Jesus as our great high priest. What is it that makes that so great about the Lord? What is it that makes him as our high priest so great? Well, look at verse 14. He says he's our great high priest because he passed through the heavens. You see, I don't know if you know this, but the tabernacle and the temple, they were given to Moses to give to the people of Israel, but they were simply an example, an example of the heavenly reality. In other words, it was like an earthly manifestation of what God's eternal and heavenly throne room is like. So that's why in the Holy of Holies, you have the Ark of the Covenant with a mercy seat on it where God said that He would sit, where He would dwell. And that lid on the Ark of the Covenant had golden cherubim or angels that were engraved onto the top of it because that's an emblem of God's actual throne room where he sits where angels fly and shout and sing holy 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 is the lord god almighty so what was happening on earth was emblematic of the real and heavenly reality 
So the high priest that Israel had previously, man, he would just go into an emblem. But one thing that makes Jesus great is that he passed through the heavens. He went into the very true and real reality. After he died and rose from the grave, the Bible teaches us that he then, after 40 days, ascended to the right hand, to the right hand of God. Luke 24, verse 51 says that when, when Jesus prayed for his disciples, he then parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Luke 16, verse 19 says that he was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Acts 1, verse 11 says this, that after he ascended, the disciples waited for him, expecting him to return. And the angels came and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And Romans 8, verse 34 applies this theologically into our own lives when he says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Part of the reason that I'm making a big deal about this today is because in those times, those readers, they would have not considered it a light thing to have access to God. But in our era, we could easily think it a light thing to have access to God. I guarantee you there are plenty of you who were born and raised simply to think as you looked out on things that, of course I have access to God. Of course I can go to God. Of course I can pray to God. Of course I can cry out to God. But the reality is, it, there is no of course. It only happened by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we must celebrate that Jesus is our great high priest, partly because he made a way because he passed through the heavens. We are no longer hoping like those ancient worshipers that it works out and that God forgives us. We have the forgiveness of God and can now come boldly into his presence. But another reason why we celebrate Jesus as our great high priest is found there in verse 14. Did you see it there? He calls Jesus, he says he's Jesus, the Son of God. The Son of God. Now the high priest, who was he a son of? The high priest was a son of Aaron. He descended from Aaron. He was of the offspring of Aaron, Moses' older brother by a few years. And Though Jesus, when he came, he did not descend from Aaron. In fact, we're going to see in a few chapters that he came from a different earthly lineage altogether. He came from the line of Melchizedek. But here, the author doesn't focus on that. He wants us to know that Jesus is divine. That he is the Son of God, God the Son. So that is another thing that is great about Jesus. But the real thing that makes Jesus our great high priest is found there in verse 15. Let's read it together. He says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. This is the thing that makes Jesus great. He is able to sympathize with your weakness. He is able to sympathize with my weakness. Now you may have noticed the way the author wrote it. I don't know if you saw that little nuanced thing. He actually doesn't say, for we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why did he say it that way? Why did he say it in, in, in the negative? 
I think he probably said it that way because at this point, as he's writing, he's, he's talking about Jesus, that he's our great high priest, that he ascended through the heavens, that he's the son of God. There might be some listeners who, as they hear that, they say, well, what good does that do my life? He's the son of God. He's transcendent. He's in heaven. He's not here with me. And the original readers, many of them were saying, you know, that's great that Jesus is there. He's ascended. He's in heaven. But I don't know when he's coming back, but it didn't happen today. And so I need something tangible. I need something physical. I want to go into the temple. I want to smell the sacrifice. I want to bring an offering. I want to hear the prayers. I want to have a physical priesthood. I need something physical to help me right now. I do not have, some of them might have said, a high priest who can actually help me today. And so Jesus says, no, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Meaning, of course, we do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. You see, Jesus Christ is able to sympathize with us in our place of weakness. And, and I don't know if you realize this today, but we brought a truckload of weakness to church this morning, didn't we? <laughs> Maybe you think you didn't, <laughs> but if you think you didn't, there's another weakness. <laughs> we brought weaknesses in a lot of different categories. One category of weakness that we bring to the Lord is we bring physical weakness. Physical weakness. Even at the height of physical health and strength, human beings are limited. You have to sleep, you have to rest, you get sick. But that's at the height. The human experience is one of enduring weaknesses and if i could say it like this discovering new physical weaknesses as time goes by we're talking to people in between services today you know they're telling me i got this physical weakness that physical weakness new one that we just discovered just kind of cruising along the light boom new thing we bring our physical weaknesses to the lord we might say god i want to serve you god i want to use this body this energy this passion i want to use it for you and for your glory Yet we bring to the Lord our limitations because we come with a physical weakness to God. There was a time in Paul's life where he was enduring a physical weakness, some kind of thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it was. Probably the best guess is some kind of eye ailment that he was enduring, but we don't know with any kind of certainty. But what we do know is that he prayed to the Lord that God would remove it from his life three times. Lord, please, would you take this thorn in the flesh from me? You, you could understand Paul's logic. God, I'm out here. I'm an apostle. I'm preaching the gospel. I'm going on missions trips. I'm getting on boats. I'm getting beat up. I'm doing all this stuff. I could use a healthy body with which to serve you. But the Lord said to him, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul made a determination. He said, I'm even going to boast in my weaknesses. So the Lord, he, he understands and can relate to, he's connected to our physical weakness. We also bring a moral weakness to God, don't we? The Lord looks at our lives. We have these decisions that we make, these moral commitments that we make. We know what is right. We know what is good. We know 
in one sense, what we'd love for our lives to be all about. It's very difficult for us to, to stay with those commitments. It's, it's very difficult for us to always make the right and good moral decision. We bring spiritual weakness to the Lord. Spiritual weakness. We, we might say, Lord, I'm fired up for you, God. I'm going to serve you with my life. But that energy, that commitment, that might, it only goes so far. I'm going to start to get up in the morning, Lord. I'm going to pray. I'm going to cry out to you. But you're going to have days where you feel a spiritual weakness. Where though the Bible teaches you are dead to sin and alive to God, you are going to wake up feeling very alive to sin and dead to God. And by faith, that is not true, but we bring that spiritual weakness to the Lord. We also have intellectual weakness as well. Now, we don't know everything that we could know. We're behind in so many ways. And we also, if I could say it like this, we have personality weakness. Now I know this isn't about you in particular, but just think about the way we do human life. It's easy for us to think about other human beings that we are at a personality odds with. You know, there's a lot I like about that person, but there's that one thing that I don't like. Well, you know what? They have that about you as well. We bring our personality weaknesses as well to the Lord. And in all of these weaknesses, Jesus Christ is able to sympathize with us in those weaknesses. And why is he able to do that? How is he able to do that? Because notice verse 15, he was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is the thing that sets Christianity apart. Our God became one of us. He experienced temptation. He endured testing so that he might relate to, so that he might know us and then ultimately die in our place. Jesus was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, I've talked about this before, so I don't want to belabor the point, but I think the case can be made that Jesus was tempted to a greater degree than anyone in this room. Part of the reason I would say that is, number one, think about the wilderness temptation that Jesus endured at the outset of his ministry. Forty days and nights in the wilderness, directly under the attack of the devil himself, no food, no drink, and tempted to commit one sin. His body emaciated and weakened through all of that fasting and dehydration, and yet still he remained constant and he did not give in to that temptation. When I read about that temptation, I think to myself, I have never been tempted like that. I think part of the reason is because I could not handle that kind of temptation. I would buckle every time. But another reason why we might say that Jesus was tempted beyond any of us is because because you might look at that thing and you might see, well, he was tempted like we are, but yet without sin. You know, like, I, he doesn't really get what temptation is all about because, well, after all, like, he never gave into it. He never sinned. So he doesn't really know the power of temptation. Well, let me, let me try to realign your thinking a little bit about that. When it comes to temptation, yes, you and I, we've all given in to temptation, right? I mean, you don't need to answer that. I already know the answer. <laughs> all right, so, so as you think about this, 
Imagine this is the line of temptation, and it's coming against you. Somebody might give up right here. Somebody might give up right here. Somebody might give up right here. But, but we've discovered this point where the temptation comes, the pressure is too much, and we give in. But Jesus is the only one who has ever experienced the full gravity of any singular temptation. He's the one who, as it pressed and pressed and pressed and pressed and pressed, he never gave in. So in a sense, because of that, Jesus could say, I've been tempted, I understand what it's like, and I understand it even better than you because I never gave in to the sin. I continued to come under the weight of that temptation. And there might be another sense in all of this where part of the reason that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses is because of what He endured on the cross. And let me explain to you what I mean. I don't think it's unreasonable to think that perhaps on the cross, Jesus became even more deeply connected to the reality of what sin is like and what temptation is like. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that for our sake, God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin... To be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Remember on the cross, when after Jesus had been on the cross for three hours, the land grew dark for three more hours, and there was not a word spoken during those three hours of darkness? Many theologians believe that it was during that moment, those three specific hours, that Jesus was personally atoning for the sin of the world. That he was experiencing what Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5 says. Surely he has borne our griefs. He was carrying our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. In other words, as he was there upon that cross, he was enduring our griefs. He was taking in our sorrows He was smitten and afflicted and stricken by God, pierced for our transgressions, and crushed for our iniquities. I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that as Jesus was suffering and being afflicted, being punished, if you will, for sin that He did not commit, but that He was owning in His own body, that He was conscious of those sins. In a sense, you might relate to this when you think about temptations that are common to humanity. There are temptations that you understand in someone else because you feel them. But there are temptations, if I could say it like this, that you would probably say, I don't understand that. I get that they are tempted, and I know that temptation, I I get how it works in me, but I'm not tempted with that particular sin. Not that I couldn't be, but I'm just not Because they're wired different, they're different, and all of that. But I think there might be a sense in which Jesus upon the cross, as He became sin for us, there was a consciousness that He received of the sin of humanity that enabled Him to even more deeply and further sympathize with us human beings. And so we have this Lord, who in the midst of our lusts and 
tempers and folly and short-sightedness and greed and hate, our imperfections and our sins. He wants to grow us past all of those things. He wants to give us victory over all of those things. But yet he sympathizes with us in the midst of our weaknesses. This is what makes our great high priest so great, so wonderful, so incredible. I want you to notice that this is not at all the tone that humanity sets for itself. I'm not going to encourage you to go hop on Twitter for five minutes this afternoon, but if you were to do so, what you would discover is a humanity that is hostile against itself. There is not much margin for error. There is an anger, there is a hostility, but there is this God in heaven who hates the sin more than anyone hates the sin but who paid the price for that sin and now sympathizes with the very people that He died for so that we might come to Him and have access to Him. That leads us to the second question. We won't take as long on this one. How should I respond? Who is Jesus? He's my great high priest, but how should I respond to that? Well, that's found in verse 14 and in verse 16. In verse 14, He says, let us hold fast our confession. How should you respond to Jesus being better, Jesus being that great high priest? Well, you should hold fast to your confession. And remember the original hearers. They were tempted to go back to that old sacrificial system. And so they needed to hold fast to Jesus. They needed to hold fast to the gospel. But secondarily and primarily, he says we should also draw near, verse 16, to the throne of grace. Now a throne like I prayed earlier, is a place where sovereignty and commands and glory and holiness emanate from. But for the Christian, if you're covered by the blood of Jesus, God's throne, which is holy and transcendent and otherwise unapproachable, it has now become a throne of grace. And how are we to approach that throne of grace? Because he tells us to draw near to it. So this is the big application. Go to God. Go to the throne of grace. Go to Him now. You have that access, so go to Him. And how should you go to Him? Notice what he says there in verse 16. He says, with, with confidence. With confidence. Now the Hebrew Christians who were reading this, when they thought about the Day of Atonement, confident was not a word that they would have used. But here the author says, no, we, we have a different thing. With confidence we go. With confidence we go. We all know what nerves are like, right? We all know that experience. I get nervous. You know, people ask me sometimes, do you get nervous in teaching the Bible? After all these years, I still get nervous. You know, there's that, it's, it's a holy moment. You're in front of people. You know, I still get nervous. I watched my daughters this last week. You know, a couple of them, they were auditioning for a part in a local play. And just the nerves, you know, like all the buildup, you know, for that audition. They had to do a monologue for a minute and sing a song for a minute. Just them, the director, just private, all of that. You know, they were just nervous, you know, and, and they'd ask us to pray, you know, okay, what can I pray for with my audition, you know, so, okay, well, let's pray for that, you know, I'm sure you want me to pray that your nerves would go away, I'd say to them, you're like, yeah, please, you know, pray that my nerves go away, and I'd tell them, I'm not going to pray that, I'm not praying that your nerves go away, those nerves are a gift, because God is going to try to use this in your life, because 
If you want to be fruitful in God's kingdom, you're going to have to do things that make you nervous. So you're going to need to feel what it's like to go with Jesus through those awkward moments and those nerves and feel his faithfulness in the midst of all that. You're going to have to get uncomfortable, so I'm going to pray that God stands with you through that and sees you to the other side. But, but we might feel that, okay, with, with the Lord. But, but what he's saying here is though there might be a reverence for God, we are to come to God with confidence. Other translations use words like bravely, boldly, courageously, without fear, or with a joyful heart. Paul said in Ephesians 3 verse 12 that to him we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Like I said, this was a shocking announcement to the original hearers who thought about the temple, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, the Day of Atonement, that we as God's people have full and complete access to not just on one day on the calendar year, but every moment of our lives come boldly to his throne of grace. And why would you want to do that? I mean, you're invited, access is there, but why would you want to take that access? Well, that's also found there in verse 16. He says to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know what that is? You know, this isn't just like Bible talk for just like good stuff. Mercy and grace. What that is, is you need and I need mercy for our failures. And you and I need grace for potential fruitfulness. You see, sometimes we think about all this like it's just the shortcomings of my life that I go to God with. But God has asked something of our lives. God is asking and looking for fruit. He's looking at your life and my life, and He's wanting us to abide in Christ so that we might bear fruit and much fruit, more fruit. And you need God's energizing power, His grace, to be able to get that. But as you're going through life, you're going to fail as well. And in those moments, what we need is the mercy of God. We need mercy for failures and grace for fruitfulness. And when do we need that? Well, in time of need. In time of need. To find mercy. To receive mercy. To find grace in our time of need. So this really isn't a teaching about prayer and how to pray, but it really is the foundational element to Christian prayer. That you would know that the high priest has won access for you to come to God so that you might Receive mercy and find grace to help you in your time of need. That is a broad idea. The time of need, go to God in that time of need. Now let me end by asking one smaller question. I'll just say it like this. How is any of this different from all the other religious systems of the world? Because in the other religious systems of the world, there's the idea of a throne, a deity, a God who wants to be approached, implored, pleaded with, so that that deity might give some form of help or aid to his subjects, to his followers. And the last thing I want you to have this morning is just dead religion. I've been praying about this all week. God, the last thing I want to give them is dead religion where they just kind of conclude with okay i guess i just gotta pray so that 
my deity, God, the true and living God, will like give me something in return. The mercy or the grace that I need. What is the difference? Well, there's a lot of differences. Many of them are found right here in this passage. Jesus came. He identified with us. He bears with us, sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. The God became flesh and dwelt among us. But the, but the big difference that I want to share with you as, as we conclude is this. It's about who initiates. When, 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 when I was younger and, and had not yet met Christina and was kind of in that time of life where I wanted to be married and was you know, feeling that at the ripe age of 22 or 23 years old, I was probably ready. <laughs> I, I asked God, I was crying out to God, God, I pray that you would, you know, in your way, that you'd provide someone for me. And I remember there was this moment where I began praying in a very specific way. I don't think everybody needs to pray like this. It's, uh, don't you know, make this a template for your own life. But I just came under the conviction that what I needed to pray is that God would bring someone into my life who I had no idea how they felt about me until I began to initiate in this relationship. I just sensed that I needed that from the Lord. I sensed that that would set the tone for our relationship, that I would be the leader in the relationship and set the tone relationally and be fighting for the relationship from the very beginning to the very end. So it's just a conviction that I have. I'm making it sound like you should pray that way, but, you know, pray about it. And I've told you guys this story before, but you know, I came to a point in this friendship that I had with Christina where I thought to myself, man, I just can't live with this friendship anymore. I don't like being friends. I don't like this at all. And so I was ready to tell her, hey, look, there's, there, I got feelings, girl. You know, I was ready to, ready to do that. And, 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 and it was, there was this one night, it happened to be Valentine's Day, and a bunch of us who were single, we were all out to dinner together. And I was like, man, I gotta, my heart is overflowing. I got to talk to her. It's going to happen. And, I, and then as we were sitting there eating dinner, all the other females at the table, all the other women, they started sharing about these terrible past Valentine's Days where good friends had confessed their undying love. <laughs> to them it just ruined everything so so i waited till february 15th and she reciprocated she couldn't believe i didn't know how she felt about me and all that but it was like god just shielded my eyes it's what i needed because i wanted to initiate that's the thing that I'm trying to say. I wanted to initiate. And that, that is just a small illustration of what we have in this passage. We have a God who's not waiting for our initiation, but who is already initiated with us. He has already come to us. He's already sent His Son to us. And now He's saying, I want you to now respond to the way that I've initiated towards you by coming boldly to my throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace to help you in your time of need. And if one way that you apply that is by praying, then pray. But come boldly to His throne of grace to find what you need from God. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our senior pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.